Section 25 of the Kerner Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, Kerner Commission Report. Chapter 5 Rejection and Protest An Historical Sketch, Part 2 segregation by law when the supreme court in eighteen eighty three declared the civil rights act of eighteen seventy five unconstitutional southern states began to enact laws to segregate the races in eighteen ninety six the supreme court in plessy versus ferguson approved separate but equal facilities it was then that segregation became an established fact by law as well as by custom Negroes and whites were separated on public carriers and in all places of public accommodation, including hospitals and churches. In courthouses, whites and Negroes took oaths on separate Bibles. In most communities, whites were separated from Negroes in cemeteries. Segregation invariably meant discrimination. On trains, all Negroes, including those holding first-class tickets, were allotted seats in the baggage car negroes in public buildings had to use freight elevators and toilet facilities reserved for janitors schools for negro children were at best a weak imitation of those for whites as states spent ten times more to educate white youngsters than negroes discrimination in wages became the rule whether between negro and white teachers of similar training and experience or between common laborers on the same job. Some northern states enacted civil rights laws in the 1880s, but Negroes in fact were treated little differently in the North than in the South. As Negroes moved north in substantial numbers toward the end of the century, they discovered that equality of treatment did not exist in Massachusetts, New York, or Illinois they were crowded by local ordinances into sections of the city where housing and public services were generally substandard overt discrimination in employment was a general practice and job opportunities apart from menial tasks were few most labor unions excluded negroes from membership or granted membership in separate and powerless jim crow locals yet when negroes secured employment during strikes labor leaders castigated them for undermining the principles of trade unionism and when negroes sought to move into the mainstream of community life by seeking membership in the organizations around them educational cultural and religious they were invariably rebuffed by the twentieth century the negro was at the bottom of american society disenfranchised negroes throughout the country were excluded by employers and labor unions from white-collar jobs and skilled trades jim crow laws and farm tenancy characterized negro existence in the south about one hundred lynchings occurred every year in the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties there were one hundred sixty one lynchings in eighteen ninety two as increasing numbers of Negroes migrated to northern cities, race riots became commonplace. 
northern whites even many former abolitionists began to accept the white south's views on race relations that northern whites would resort to violence was made clear in anti-negro riots in new york city nineteen hundred springfield ohio nineteen o four greensburg indiana nineteen o six and springfield illinois nineteen o eight the springfield illinois riot lasted three days it was initiated by a white woman's charge of rape by a negro inflamed by newspapers and intensified by crowds of whites gathered around the jail demanding that the negro arrested and imprisoned be lynched when the sheriff transferred the accused and another negro to a jail in a nearby town rioters headed for the negro section and attacked homes and businesses owned by or catering to negroes white owners who showed handkerchiefs in their windows averted harm to their stores one negro was summarily lynched others were dragged from houses and streetcars and beaten by the time national guardsmen could reach the scene six persons were dead four whites and two negroes property damage was extensive many negroes left springfield hoping to find better conditions elsewhere especially in chicago protest in the early nineteen hundreds between his famous atlanta exposition address in eighteen ninety five and his death in nineteen fifteen booker t washington principal of the tuskegee normal and industrial institute in alabama and the most prominent negro in america privately spent thousands of dollars fighting disenfranchisement and segregation laws publicly he advocated a policy of accommodation conciliation and gradualism washington believed that by helping themselves by creating and supporting their own businesses by proving their usefulness to society through the acquisition of education wealth and morality negroes would earn the respect of the white man and thus eventually gain their constitutional rights self-help and self-respect appeared a practical and sure if gradual way of ultimately achieving racial equality washington's doctrines also gained support because they appealed to race pride if negroes believed in themselves stood together and supported each other they would be able to shape their destinies in the early years of the century a small group of negroes led by w e b du bois formed the niagara movement to oppose washington's program washington had put economic progress before politics had accepted the separate but equal theory and opposed agitation and protest du bois and his followers stressed political activity as the basis of the negro's future insisting on the inequity of jim crow laws and advocating agitation and protest in sharp language the niagara group placed responsibility for the race problem squarely on the whites the aims of the movement were voting rights and the abolition of all caste distinctions based simply on race and color although booker t washington tried to crush his critics du bois and the negro radicals as they were called enlisted the support of a small group of influential white liberals and socialists together in nineteen o nine nineteen ten 
they formed the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. The NAACP hammered at the walls of prejudice by organizing Negroes and well-disposed whites, by aiming propaganda at the whole nation, by taking legal action in courts and legislatures. Almost at the outset of its career, the NAACP prevailed upon the Supreme Court to declare unconstitutional two discriminatory statutes. In 1915, the court struck down the Oklahoma Grandfather Clause, a provision in several southern state constitutions that, together with voting tests, had the effect of excluding from the vote those whose ancestors were ineligible to vote in 1860. Two years later, the Supreme Court outlawed residential segregation ordinances. These NAACP victories were the first legal steps in a long fight against disenfranchisement and segregation. During the first quarter of the 20th century, the federal government enacted no new legislation to ensure equal rights or opportunities for Negroes, and made little attempt to enforce existing laws, despite flagrant violations of Negro civil rights. In 1913, members of Congress from the South introduced bills to federalize the Southern segregation policy. They wished to ban interracial marriages in the District of Columbia, segregate white and Negro federal employees, and introduce Jim Crow laws in the public carriers of the district. The bills did not pass, but segregation practices were extended in federal offices, shops, restrooms, and lunchrooms. The nation's capital became as segregated as any in the former Confederate states. East St. Louis, 1917 Elsewhere there was violence. In July 1917, in East St. Louis, a riot claimed the lives of 39 Negroes and 9 whites. It was the result of fear by white working men that Negro advances in economic, political, and social status were threatening their own security and status. When the labor force of an aluminum plant went on strike, the company hired Negro workers, a labor union delegation called on the mayor and asked that further migration of Negroes to East St. Louis be stopped. As the men were leaving City Hall, they heard that a Negro had accidentally shot a white man during a hold-up. In a few minutes, rumor had replaced fact. The shooting was intentional. A white woman had been insulted. Two white girls were shot. By this time, 3,000 people had congregated and were crying for vengeance. Mobs roamed the street, beating Negroes. Policemen did little more than take the injured to hospitals and disarm Negroes. The National Guard restored order. When the governor withdrew the troops, tensions were still high, and scattered episodes broke the peace. The press continued to emphasize Negro crimes. White pickets and Negro workers at the aluminum company skirmished and on July 1st, some whites drove through the main Negro neighborhood, firing into homes. Negro residents armed themselves. When a police car drove down the street, Negroes riddled it with gunshot. The next day, a Negro was shot on the main street, and a new riot was underway. The area became a bloody half-mile for three or four hours, 
street-cars were stopped, and negroes, without regard to age or sex, were pulled off and stoned, clubbed and kicked. Mob leaders calmly shot and killed negroes who were lying in blood in the street. As the victims were placed in an ambulance, the crowds cheered and applauded. Other rioters set fire to negro homes, and by midnight the negro section was in flames, and negroes were fleeing the city. There were forty-eight dead, hundreds injured, and more than three hundred buildings destroyed. World War I and Post-War Violence When the United States entered World War I in 1917, the country again faced the question whether American citizens should have the right to serve on an equal basis in defense of their country. More than two million Negroes registered under the Selective Service Act, and some 360,000 were called into service. The Navy rejected Negroes, except as menials. The Marine Corps rejected them altogether. The Army formed them into separate units, commanded for the most part by white officers. Only after great pressure did the Army permit Negro candidates to train as officers in a segregated camp. Mistreated at home and overseas, Negro combat units performed exceptionally well under French commanders, who refused to heed American warnings that Negroes were inferior people. Negro soldiers returning home were mobbed for attempting to use facilities open to white soldiers. Of the seventy Negroes lynched during the first year after the war, a substantial number were soldiers. Some were lynched in uniform. Reorganized in 1915, the Ku Klux Klan was flourishing again by 1919. Its program for uniting native-born white Christians for concerted action in the preservation of American institutions and the supremacy of the white race was implemented by flogging, branding with acid, tarring and feathering, hanging and burning. It destroyed the elemental rights of many Negroes and of some whites. Violence took the form of lynchings and riots, and major riots by whites against Negroes took place in 1917 in Chester, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, in 1919 in Washington, D.C., Omaha, Charleston, Longview, Texas, Chicago, and Knoxville, and in 1921 in Tulsa. The Chicago riot of 1919 flared from the increase in Negro population which had more than doubled in ten years. Jobs were plentiful, but housing was not. Black neighborhoods expanded into white sections of the city, and trouble developed. Between July 1917 and March 1921, 58 Negro houses were bombed, and recreational areas were sites of racial conflict. The riot itself started on Sunday, July 27th, with stone-throwing and sporadic fighting at adjoining white and negro beaches. A negro boy, swimming off the negro beach, drifted into water reserved for whites and drowned. Young negroes claimed that he had been struck by stones and demanded the arrest of a white man. Instead, police arrested a negro. Negroes attacked policemen, and news spread to the city. White and Negro groups clashed in the streets. Two persons died, and fifty were wounded. On Monday, 
negroes coming home from work were attacked later when whites drove cars through negro neighborhoods and fired weapons the negroes retaliated twenty more were killed and hundreds wounded on tuesday a handful more were dead one hundred twenty nine injured rain began to fall the mayor finally called in the state militia the city quieted down after nearly a week of violence the 1920s and the new militancy in the period between the two world wars the naacp dominated the strategy of racial advancement the naacp drew its strength from large numbers of southern negroes who had migrated to northern cities and from a small but growing negro group of professionals and businessmen it projected the image of the new negro race-proud and self-reliant believing in racial cooperation and self-help and determined to fight for his constitutional rights this was reflected in the work of writers and artists known as the harlem renaissance who drew upon the negro's own cultural tradition and experience w e b du bois editor of the crisis the naacp publication symbolized the new mood and exerted great influence the naacp did extraordinary service giving legal defense to victims of race riots and unjust judicial proceedings it obtained the release of the soldiers who had received life sentences on charges of rioting against intolerable conditions at houston in 1917 it successfully defended negro sharecroppers in elaine arkansas who in 1919 had banded together to gain fairer treatment they had become the objects of a massive armed hunt by whites to put them in their place and who were charged with insurrection when they resisted it secured the acquittal with the help of clarence darrow of dr ossian sweet and his family the sweets who had moved into a white neighborhood in detroit shot at a mob attacking their home and killed a man the sweets were eventually judged to have committed the act in self-defense less successful were attempts to prevent school segregation in northern cities gerrymandering of school boundaries and other devices by boards of education were fought with written petitions verbal protests to school officials legal suits and in several cities school boycotts all proved of no avail the thrust of the naacp was primarily political and legal but the national urban league founded in 1911 by philanthropists and social workers sought an economic solution to the negroes problems sympathetic with booker t washington's point of view believing in conciliation gradualism and moral suasion the urban league searched out industrial opportunities for negro migrants to the cities using arguments that appealed to the white businessman's sense of economic self-interest and also to his conscience another important figure who espoused an economic program to ameliorate the negro's condition was a philip randolph an editor of the messenger he regarded the NAACP as a middle-class organization, unconcerned about pressing economic problems. Taking a Marxist position on the causes of prejudice and discrimination, 
randolph called for a new and radical negro unafraid to demand his rights as a member of the working class he advocated physical resistance to white mobs but he believed that only united action of black and white workers against capitalists would achieve social justice although randolph addressed himself to the urban working masses few of them ever read the messenger the one man who reached the masses of frustrated and disillusioned migrants in the northern ghettos was marcus garvey garvey founder in nineteen fourteen of the universal negro improvement association unia aimed to liberate both africans and american negroes from their oppressors his utopian method was the wholesale migration of american negroes to africa contending that whites would always be racist he stressed racial pride and history denounced integration and insisted that the black man develop a distinct racial type of civilization of his own and work out his salvation in his motherland on a more practical level he urged support of negro businesses and through the unia organized a chain of groceries restaurants laundries a hotel printing plant and steamship line when several prominent negroes called the attention of the federal government to irregularities in the management of the steamship line garvey was jailed and then deported for having used the mails to defraud but Garvey dramatized, as no one before, the bitterness and alienation of the Negro slum-dwellers, who, having come north with great expectations, found only overcrowded and deteriorated housing, mass unemployment, and race riots. THE DEPRESSION Negro labor, relatively unorganized and the target of discrimination and hostility, was hardly prepared for the depression of the nineteen thirties to a disproportionate extent negroes lost their jobs in cities and worked for starvation wages in rural areas although organizations like the national urban league tried to improve employment opportunities sixty-five per cent of negro employables were in need of public assistance by nineteen thirty five public assistance was given on a discriminatory basis especially in the south for a time dallas and houston gave no relief at all to negro or mexican families in general negroes had more difficulty than whites in obtaining assistance and the relief benefits were smaller some religious and charitable organizations excluded negroes from their soup kitchens the new deal the new deal marked a turning point in american race relations negroes found much in the new deal to complain about discrimination existed in many agencies federal housing programs expanded urban ghettos money from the agricultural adjustment administration went in the south chiefly to white land owners while crop restrictions forced many negro sharecroppers off the land nevertheless negroes shared in relief jobs and public housing and negro leaders who felt the open sympathy of many highly placed new dealers held more prominent political positions than at any time since president taft's administration the creation of the congress of industrial organizations cio 
with its avowed philosophy of non-discrimination, made the notion of an alliance of black and white workers something more than a visionary's dream. The Depression, the New Deal, and the CIO reoriented Negro protest to concern with economic problems. Negroes conducted don't-buy-where-you-can't-work campaigns in a number of cities, boycotted and picketed commercial establishments owned by whites, and sought equality in American society through an alliance with white labor. The NAACP came under attack from some Negroes. Du Bois resigned as editor of the crisis in 1934, in part because he believed in the value of collective racial economic endeavor and saw little point in protesting disenfranchisement and segregation without more actively pursuing economic goals. Younger critics also disagreed with the NAACP's gradualism on economic issues. Undeterred, the NAACP broadened the scope of its legal work, fought a vigorous though unsuccessful campaign to abolish the poll tax, and finally won its attack on the white primaries in 1944 through the Supreme Court. But the heart of its litigation was its long-range campaign against segregation and the most obvious inequities in the southern school systems, the lack of professional and graduate schools and the low salaries received by Negro teachers, not until about 1950 would the NAACP make a direct assault against school segregation on the legal ground that separate facilities were inherently unequal. End of section 25. Recording by Maria Casper.